0: Thanks, Mary Lee. Um, I've got to disagree as well with Nick because I think I could have a little fight with him afterwards. I think he would win because he's way bigger than me. About who's got the best job in the world. I, I felt like I could like, argue with Nick about me having the best job in the world. Um, I, I get to teach people from the Bible. And, and, I, and I'm serious about this. This week, most of this week, I've been swimming around in this passage that Mary Lee read to us a moment ago. There are times, I'm not ashamed to say, when it's made me cry. There are times when it has moved my own heart deeply. There's been times when I wish I could sneeze and be here today to share with you some of the things that I've seen and experienced in these verses. This passage, uh, I I don't know, when Moses in the Old Testament came to burning bush, God told him to take his shoes off because he said we're on holy ground and I kind of feel metaphorically like I want to say we should all take our shoes off because this passage we're going to think about this afternoon is 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 incredible and and it's potentially life-changing so uh, yeah I have the best job in the world so take that Nick so (laughs) um the Bible is full Of miracles. We don't need to list them, you know many of them, but we live in a culture that is incredibly skeptical. The fact that the Bible is full of miracles actually makes the Bible itself utterly implausible for many people in our modern culture. Any thought Of God supernaturally intervening in this world is generally, I'm sure you'd agree, dismissed as irrational, superstitious, unscientific, and if you believe this stuff you must be some kind of gullible, I don't know, weak person. This isn't a new thing. Um, Thomas Jefferson I don't know if this is like an accurate likeness, someone painted this because he lived before cameras. Thomas Jefferson was a founding father of the United States and uh, and its third president. Towards the end of his life, he did something that he had been meaning to do all his life. He talked with friends about it and uh, towards the end of his life, he produced his own Bible. And here's a picture of it. Jefferson made four columns in it. He, he literally made this himself. There are four columns there. He was a clever guy. The first is Greek, the second is Latin, the third column is French, and the fourth column is English. What he did was he went to the Bible literally with a penknife. And he cut out the bits he liked and stuck them into his new Bible. And the bits he didn't like that were too supernatural for his taste, he bin them. Apparently, his Bible is roughly 10% smaller than the real Bible because he felt like 90% of it didn't make sense to him and he wanted to get rid of it. So this is the Jefferson Bible. This is the original cut and paste Before he had Microsoft Word, he did it with a penknife and glue. Thomas Jefferson wanted the morals of Christianity. Let me give you a quote here. He claimed that Christianity and its morals were the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to mankind. But he literally cut out anything that appeared to him too supernatural. Why do I mention this? I I mention this to you because I think Jefferson, whatever you think of miracles, I I think Jefferson actually missed the greatest of all miracles. It isn't one of the obvious contenders for the prize. Here's the thing. I, I think everyone who believes in a God believes that surely that God's job is to sort out the bad guys and to reward the good guys. you, You could say, God, he has one job, dispensing justice. I think we all believe that. Even someone who isn't a believer, I think, wants this kind of justice to be in evidence. The greatest miracle in the Bible is not one of the obvious ones, it is the fact that God forgives the guilty. The God of the Bible is an astonishing God in that He breaks these categories and turns the moral universe on its head when He forgives the guilty. It is perhaps more than a miracle, it borders actually on being a scandal. How can God uphold justice and forgive people who are guilty? How can he do that and be true to himself? This is one of the questions we're thinking about in our Little Easter series. It's only for three weeks. This is the middle one. We're thinking about a chapter that Mary Lou read to us, Isaiah 53. And... um, It'd be great, by the way, if you could keep your finger on that page because I'm going to refer to it. We've been thinking about this mysterious character called the servant. And we've got three sessions. They all relate to Easter. He suffered, he died, and he rose. Last week, Luke helped us to think about the first one. Today, we're focusing on the middle section. And we're thinking about the fact that this mysterious servant who points to Jesus, died. We'll, we'll get into the passage in a moment. Is this waking? There we go. But I just wanna say two introductory things that both, in a way, flow from this passage. These things are connected, but they relate to the supernatural. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you them all in one go. There you go. Here, here's a statement for you. You can think about this. I want to suggest to you from this passage that God is, in fact, supernaturally at work in his world. In two ways. First of all, to bring his plans to fruition. And secondly, in order to change people's hearts. The first idea on the left there, I get from the fact, you you may not know this, these verses that we read from Isaiah are written... Over 700 years before Christ was born. And yet they predict in great detail and very specifically what would happen to Jesus 700 years later. That in itself is an amazing fact. These verses here speak of someone being pierced, as Jesus was. They speak of someone who was unfairly treated, condemned, and executed yet said nothing to defend himself, just as Jesus did. They speak of someone who was executed as a common criminal and yet buried with the rich, which is exactly what happened to Jesus, being buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. We're not going to dwell on this. This is just a little brief introduction but I want you to see that if something is predicted 700 years before it happens and then it happens in perfect detail, this is one very plausible piece of evidence that someone behind the scenes is pulling the strings. Wouldn't you agree? Someone is orchestrating these events. So the way I phrased it here, Is that this passage, 700 years before Christ, fulfilled in Christ, reminds us and points to the fact that God is at work supernaturally in this world to bring to fruition his own plans and purposes. My second observation, very quickly on the right there, is that God is also supernaturally at work in this world to change people's hearts. And we actually have an example of this in the Bible itself. Let's fast forward 700 years to a time just after Christ. And we'll see a man traveling from Africa to Jerusalem. He's, he's going there intending to worship. He is a deeply curious, perhaps we might even say he, he's searching this man is an important official in a royal court in northern Africa. And I, I hesitate to say this, but one of the painful traditions in ancient cultures, if a man worked in the royal court, one of the traditions was that sometimes the king would insist on the menfolk in his, his court courtiers being castrated. I, I wouldn't be volunteering for that job. But these men were known as eunuchs. I I suppose the idea may have been that it was a way of ensuring their loyalty and lifelong service. So this particular man, as he travels, we we know he's never gonna be married, he's never gonna have children, he has no family. Maybe when he got to Jerusalem, they turned him away because he wasn't a Jew. Some guy showing up from Africa, curious, seeking, searching, wanting to worship. Maybe they sent him away. Anyway, on his way home, he sits in his chariot on the way home, reading out loud this very passage that we're looking at this afternoon. And a man called Philip comes alongside him and hears what he's reading. And he asks this African man, do you understand what you're reading? It's a good question, isn't it? And the eunuch replies, How can I understand it if no one explains it to me? And then the eunuch asks a very pertinent question. In this passage that I'm reading, who's the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself? Is this autobiographical? Or is he talking about someone else? That's another great question, isn't it? Who is this servant who dies? And then we're told, you can read about this in the book of Acts in the New Testament, chapter 8, that Philip, I quote, he began with this very passage of Scripture and told this curious African man the good news about Jesus. So Philip uses what was then a 7 year 700-year-old passage of the Old Testament Scriptures, and points this man to Christ. He points him to the sad death of Christ, which is somehow described as good news. This man in his chariot, he seems to get it and understand it so quickly that he even gets baptized right there in a river in the side of the road. And we're told in Acts that he went back to Africa, where he'd come from, reducing. This was a man who set out from home, searching. He encounters this passage on his way home, and he goes home. I, I, I want to do a little, you know, one of those little kicks where you kick your heels together. He goes home, skipping. He, he goes home, glad. He's found now what he's been looking for. So, this this passage then, on the one hand, predicts the death of Jesus 700 years before it even happened, but at the same time, this same text transforms the life of this man from a curious searcher to a man who's delighted to find now what he's been looking for. And it's the cross where these two ideas converge. The fact that Jesus died is the thing that ties those two things together. The cross where Jesus died is first of all a historical reality carefully planned and predicted by God. But we see secondly that when we grasp what is really going on at the cross where Jesus died, it has the power to transform and change our lives. Some of you know that I like doing crosswords, especially cryptic ones. I don't think I'm very good at them, but I do like the challenge of doing them. And often, mainly when other people look looking the way, I'll look away from the puzzle and go to the back of the book to find out what the answer is because I can't quite piece it together. In the same way, Jesus and the fact that he died is the ultimate solution to all of the riddles of life that we might experience. The cross of Christ towers over human history as the great transforming solution to yours and my deepest need. I was suggesting to you that the greatest miracle of all is that God forgives the guilty. The reason that God can forgive the guilty Is because Christianity is the only religion in the world and ever in history that tells us that God has satisfied his own justice by entering his broken creation and dying in the place of us guilty humans. We've been aware, haven't we, only yesterday of the French policeman Lieutenant Colonel Arno Beltram. I've no idea my daughter will kill me for pronouncing it like that. I should have asked her to do it. He died to save a hostage near the town of Carcassonne. Yesterday, the first line of the BBC report said that this policeman had swapped himself for a hostage. His brother Cedric later said. He gave his life for strangers. He must have known that he didn't really have a chance. And if that doesn't make him a hero, I don't know what would. If you've got your finger on the page, it'd be a great help. I'm I'm sorry it goes over the page. But um, we're just going to look primarily at verses 4, 5, and 6. And the first thing I just want you to notice is that these verses are spoken in the plural. This is a group of people. And it is as if this group realized for the first time that the servant has swapped places with them. It's like it dawns on them that they were the ones who should have died. And somehow this mysterious figure, this servant, has taken their place and died instead of them. Surely he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What I want you to notice here in verses 4, 5, and 6 is that as this group, it's almost like they're making a confession somehow, isn't it? Speaking corporately. But as they describe the death of the servant, it's almost as if they hold it up to light like an object, and they, and they look at it from three different angles. They spin it round, and verses 4 and 5 and 6 give us a slightly different slant, if you like, on the fact that the servant has died. In verse 4, the idea is that the servant carries their burdens. In verse 5, we'll see right at the end of verse 5 that it speaks of healing. By his wounds we are healed. And in verse 6, the whole idea is of sheep who've gone astray, wandered off. And the idea there is being brought back to safety. So I just want to spend some time with you this afternoon thinking about these three verses and just exploring These three different ideas. You'll see on the program there, I've tried to show them so that you can see. The first one is, what what these people effectively say is, we were ground down by our guilt, but he died to carry our burden and to take it away. As we read those words, the first part of their confession in verse 4 involves a shock they knew the suffering one had died but in the second half of verse 4 they just thought, they just assumed God must be punishing him for something really bad that he'd done. I I think it's true that none of us, I don't know, you, you might want to correct me afterwards, I don't think any of us choose suffering, do we? I think when we suffer in our lives, we tend to believe one of two things. If we suffer, we either think, this is, this is a random accident, and I'm just going to have to grit my teeth and bear it. There's no point to it. It's just a random accident. Or, on the other hand, we might think, Do you ever hear someone say, what did I do to deserve this? It's not a random accident. The sense is, I must have done something really bad for this to happen. I think they're generally our reactions. It's either random or it's a punishment. I think in the culture that I, I lived in, the prevalent belief would have been that if someone suffered, they must have secretly done something really terrible. This happens in the book of Job. His friends come to him to try and comfort him, but they can't get over the fact that his life's a mess. If his life's a mess, he must have a skeleton in the closet. We call them Job's comforters, more like Job's, like, idiots, friends. He's suffering on the one hand, they make him feel even worse. This was a common belief. Somehow it dawns on this, this group that this servant chose to suffer in their place. It dawns on, it's almost like a shock, surely He took up our pain and bore our suffering. He did it deliberately, willingly, decisively. And the thing is here with Jesus, when 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 we project this forward. What is happening to him on the outside doesn't match his inside. If Job's comforters came to Jesus, they would have said to him, you must have a skeleton in your closet. Nothing could be further from the truth. What is going on for Jesus on the outside is terrible suffering, but he isn't suffering on the outside because he's a terrible sinner on the inside. He is suffering because he's generous and kind and because he has come to bear the burdens of others. I want to highlight their realization here that they were not as right as they thought they were. I think these people are beginning to realize the seriousness of their true condition. And I think, I I, I want to say, if we're honest, we know it too, don't we? We, we, we often haven't even lived up to our own ideals, let alone God's ideals. I think sometimes that causes us deep discomfort. Often we live in denial. We spend much of our energy either trying to cover up that fact or to blame others for it. I think the reason that we spend so much energy trying to justify ourselves is because deep down, we know in our hearts that this is a burden that we can't carry. It is too heavy a load. Sometimes the desire to cover up and be acceptable is what drives our frantic workaholism. We're striving constantly to succeed, to make ourselves right. Many of our relationship problems stem from the fact that we're so defensive and we have this instinctive need to be right. We blame one another to cover our own shortcomings. Because we can't carry our own guilt, what we're looking for is a scapegoat. What we see here is that Jesus volunteers to be that scapegoat. He comes and he is willing to take the blame for the guilt that is ours. Jesus comes to, I I don't know, it's almost as if Jesus takes it off our shoulders and puts it on his own. And the burden of guilt that would crush us actually crushed him. Friends, this is the basis on which God, who is just, can forgive the guilty. Because he sent Jesus, and because Jesus willingly came, to carry our guilt. I, I almost wanna say that this is Jesus' professional capacity. He is the great burden bearer. This is what he sees as his job. And this group see that certainly here in verse 4. I think it's even more explicit in the next verse. The second thing that I've said here, this is now looking at verse 5. The, the, these, this is me paraphrasing this group. We were broken by our own biases, but he died to heal our disease or sickness. I, I'm talking about spiritual sickness and disease there. Just look with me at verse 5. The author here piles up expressions that build up a gruesome picture. He was pierced, he was crushed. He was punished. He was wounded. We might summarize. It would not be inaccurate to summarize this by saying, over all of it, he was beaten to a pulp. That's how it was for Jesus. He was stripped and flogged to within an inch of his life. Leather cords with bits of stone tied into them. Tied to a pillar, they flogged his back until you couldn't see the skin anymore. The soldiers blindfolded him and hit him in the face and said, You're a prophet. Prophesy. Who hit you? They tried to pluck the beard from his chin. They spat in his face. They forced a crown of twisted thorns into his head until the blood came down his face they forced him to carry his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem like a criminal. And then when they got to Golgotha, they laid him out and drove spikes through his hands and feet and lifted him up to die. Listen to this group. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Friends, in in this little section here, there's a number of ways. Let me just pause for a moment here. There's a number of ways that this passage speaks about Human failure, let's call it that. First of all, in verse 5, there's that word transgressions. You, You can imagine what that word means, can't you? A transgression. There's a line drawn, and when we go over it, we transgress. That's one way of speaking of our human failure. This is speaking of us Breaking God's moral law. God draws a line, we just want to get a marker pen and draw it somewhere else. We transgress when we break his commandments. Then this passage speaks of a thing, strange word, the word iniquity. This word is more the idea. That our human nature is bent or biased. I think I've told some of this before. When I was a kid, and I'm, I'm talking like 10 years old, in the days when parents would let their kids go off all day, they don't do, we don't do it now. I have a younger brother, he's 18 months younger than me, and we discovered that you could play crown green bowls in a park about two miles away for like, I, I, I seem to remember it was like 10 pence to play. We didn't have loads of money, so we just thought it's worth walking two miles to pay 10 pence to play crown green bowling for two hours. Normally, it's old age pensions who play crown green bowling, and we're there, 10 years old and 8 years old, playing crown green bowls. We got quite good at it. One of the things you learn very quickly is that when you bowl the ball, it doesn't go in a straight line, because in the side of the ball, there's a weight. And the skill in the game is you've got to judge the weight and the pace, and you've got to send your ball out like in this direction so the weight of the ball caves it in to where the jack is. You have to compensate. That was the skill. I I think that sums up the word iniquity brilliantly. This word is a word that means biased. However hard we try, however hard I try, It seems that within us, there is something that is weighted towards self-centeredness, selfishness. We lean a certain way, even when we try not to. I think sometimes those of us who consider ourselves very respectable, we're actually being religious and respectable because we're being self-centered. We don't want people to, to think that we're not like that. Even when we try our best to be good, we're still caving over here. It's as if our hearts are biased. And then later in this chapter, there's another word. We, we didn't read it, but in the last verse, it just talks the word sin. You're familiar with that word. People don't like it. The word sin means something different. The word sin means to fall short or to miss the mark. I'm told... That in some places, people who are proper like archers, I don't mean people who are playing at it, professional archers, if an arrow, if it comes out wrong and it misses the target and lands on the grass, they actually call that arrow a sinner. Why? Because it's fallen short of the target. How often our lives are like that? We mean well, but we can't quite ever seem to hit the bullseye. Even with our best intentions, we fall short. Some people think the Bible is very simplistic. All of these ideas for me combine to give and provide a very rich metaphor of what our human condition is really like. Crossing the line, caving away, missing the mark. And this confession here of this group, it kind of embraces or they realize that this is them but I've been very struck this week, by the end of verse five. I, I think that this is a passage I've been familiar with, but I've never really seen this phrase: "By his wounds, we are healed." That seems to be to be a medical term. It is it is as if their inward bias is like a kind of incurable spiritual disease, and what they're saying here is that they have now found a cure for this inward condition, and the cure, amazingly, is the bloody, bruised wounds of the Lord Jesus. By his wounds, we are healed. It seems to me when I read that as if when these people saw and grasped the wounds that this servant has endured on their behalf, their sinful self-centered tendencies began to melt away it's as if there's a kind of sanctifying or a transforming power in the wounds of Christ that seem to heal them of the bias that they used to have. I just want to say a couple of things on this. First of all, just hear this. I I feel like some of us We, we love to speak, as Christian believers, about Jesus being Lord and King. And it's true and entirely appropriate, but it occurs to me as I reflect on this verse that that is not the thing that will transform us. It is good for us to see the triumph and victory and eternal glory of Jesus. But if our inward biases are to be conquered and healed, somehow we need to see his griefs more than we currently do. And I I, want to suggest to you that I think actually we can't truly see his kingliness until we've seen his utter brokenness. The healing, friends, is in his wounds. Let me build on that. I feel again like some of us, I, I want you to hear this as a challenge, and I'm preaching to my own heart here. We confess Jesus as our Savior, we know all about the cross, we can articulate all the basic truths of Christianity, and yet somehow we sense that our inward bias still grips us. We make the same mistakes. It's as if there's a gap. We say one thing and we're continually doing another thing. I wonder whether the answer is right here in front of us. There is a kind of sanctifying, healing, transforming power in seeing the deep agonies of Jesus on our behalf. I could ask you, as I've asked myself this week, what is it that you struggle with today? Do you feel in your life there's a recurring theme of pride, arrogance, superiority? Seeing the wounds of Jesus will surely humble you. This afternoon, do you find your heart to be full of doubts? Maybe you even have come to church today feeling a kind of despair that if you came to Christ, he would reject you. Go and see his dying agonies for you, and you'll be reassured. If he could go to that length, that he loves you, I wonder whether you feel angry at the unfairness of life and in danger of being bitter and your heart feels like it's setting like concrete. Here's a course of antibiotics that might cure that condition. It involves seeing something of his suffering. As you see him, maybe you're Anger, disquiet, will begin to melt and soften and drip away. You're getting the point, I think. When we are broken by our own inward bias, friends, the antidote is always to go to Jesus and to see his suffering for our sins by his wounds. We are healed. The cross of Jesus will humble you if you're proud and hard, and it will encourage you if you're weak and fearful. I I wonder often whether all of this is in our heads and we hold it at arm's length and we don't let it come close to us we speak of believing in Christ, but that can't just be an intellectual assent to what Christ has done. Faith in Christ involves laying hold of his sufferings for us. Why? So that it changes us. Our basic disease, if you like, is that our instinct is always me first. But a sight of Jesus and his wounds has the power to replace that instinct with more noble and beautiful instincts, like his instincts, that say, others first. Well, there's two aspects of the death of Jesus. It takes our guilt away, and it has the power to heal our brokenness. Let's quickly look at verse 6, because there's more here. I'll try and be brief. Verse 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My statement here, summarizing them, is we were fed up with our own foolishness. (laughs) But he died to restore us to safety. I think the metaphor of sheep seems so perfectly apt in describing our human nature. Sheep are cared for by their shepherd, but totally incapable of gratitude. Did you ever see a sheep say thank you? I never see a sheep say anything, but you know what I mean. The other thing about sheep is they're clever enough to escape, but too stupid to find their way home. What is that all about? If you were a shepherd and you had a field 10 miles long and there was a tiny gap in the bottom corner you can bet your bottom dollar the sheep would find it and wouldn't be able to find their way back in. Their confession here is an acknowledgement of their foolishness. That's what we're all like. We're all like sheep who've gone astray. But I love the fact that it's a general confession and then a particular individual confession that, that what they're saying is, we're all the same, we're all in the same boat, we're all like sheep, but... We're not all the same. Each of us, individually, in different ways, has turned to their own way. We're all like sheep, but we express that all in different ways. None of us sin in the same way. It's, It's brilliant the way it's a general confession and a specific individual one. My sins are not your sins. Your sins are not each other's sins. We're all like sheep, but every individual one of us is each turned to our own way. And I think their confession has something of being fed up in it. We're just like sheep. We can't seem to help it. There's something... It's like I look at my life and I feel like, how could I be so stupid sometimes? I, I seem to have no idea what's good for me. We wander aimlessly. We get ourselves into all kinds of trouble and difficulty. But friends, look at the amazing truth here. The text says... In the face of all of that, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The first thing to notice is that this is deliberate. This is something that God has done in his grace and mercy. The father planned it, the son willingly came and subjected himself to this plan of salvation if human sins were like light all around us, it's almost as if God takes a magnifying glass. Did you ever do this when you were a kid? Take a magnifying glass and you focus all the rays of the sun on a crisp packet until it melts and sets on fire. When it says the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, keep that image in your mind all of our iniquity, all of our bias, all of our brokenness, and God takes a magnifying glass and brings it all together and focuses it on the shoulders of His Son. Or if our sin was like a debt that we all owed, It's almost like the great debt collector comes and he says, I'll take your debt, I'll take your debt, I'll take your debt. And he has an Excel spreadsheet and he adds them all together and he produces one big debt. And then he goes and knocks on Jesus' door and says, Pay up. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a phrase that is. In the New Testament, there's a lovely reference to this. Peter, a disciple of Jesus, wrote, wrote these words. For you, he's writing to a church, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christ is the good shepherd. Some of us have despised him all of our lives. And yet he is the one who dies for the foolish sheep so that we can come home and return to his care, goodness, and experience his oversight of our lives again. What a wonderful truth so Jesus died to carry our burden of guilt he, he, he died to heal our bias and he dies to restore us to his loving care what kind of man is Jesus we're nearly done oh man I completely forgot to do all this didn't I I got carried away what kind of man is Jesus? Just three, three quick things. That's a tongue twist, isn't it? I'm sure you'd agree with me, having heard what we've looked at in these three verses. He had to be strong, didn't he? We have guys who come to our gym at home and they pride themselves on how much weight they can bench press. Oh, I did 17 times my own body weight what must it have been friends for Jesus to carry the weight of our burdens he's the only one who could have done it because he's not a mere man but the son of God come into our human flesh this was his plan and only he was strong enough to do it. Secondly, I want you to see that he had to be innocent. We haven't really looked at verses 7 to 9, but they're really describing his total innocence. Jesus could not have died for our sins if he was a sinner himself. You get that? And even though he was falsely accused, mocked, He said nothing. I I can't even begin to compute verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted. All of it was unfair, yet he did not open his mouth. I only have to hear a little slight rumour that someone's criticised me. I don't want to go and break their windows. The injustice of it, the unfairness of it. This is the most innocent man who ever lived. This is a kangaroo court. These people hate him. They crucified him. And it says, yet he did not open his mouth. Here is the most innocent person who ever lived suffering the greatest injustice ever conceived. And there is not a hint of retaliation or self-justification. Not one word. Look at the end of verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked like a common criminal. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And thirdly, he had to be loved. Just stop with me for a minute and think about this one question. If you forget everything today, remember this question. What was it that kept Jesus on the cross? This is the man who told the weather to be quiet. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He made blind people see again. He made paralyzed people walk again. He could have snuffed out his enemies with his little finger. He could have gone, and they'd have all melted. He could have called down a million angels from heaven and said, Get these idiots off here. It can't have been the nails that restrained him. It isn't some poxy Roman centurions who frightened him and forced him to stay there. The thing that enabled him and led him to endure all of this was nothing less than his love. No one could have made him do it. To me, it's the contrast that is so rich and vibrant This is one who left the highest, glorious, ultimate heights of glory and came down to the most lowest, wretched depths of humiliation. What a journey Christ made. And he didn't even make this journey for people who deserved it. (laughs) The Bible says in another place, Christ Jesus came into the world... to save sinners. And at this cross, Jesus is saying to you and me, I love you, despite your bias. I love you more than my own life. I know you, I know your burdens, I know your bias, I know your waywardness, and I love you. And the journey that I've made, I've made to carry your burdens Heal your diseases and bring you back safely to me. Let me close with this. There's a great story, if you like to read, there's a great story in Charles Dickens' novel, The Tale of Two Cities, set in the French Revolution. Charles Darnay is in prison in Paris, condemned to the guillotine and another man he knows called Sidney Carton visits him in his cell with a plan to take his place. They look quite alike, that's the twist in the story. And as Sidney Carton tries to persuade Darnie to swap clothes, Darnie isn't convinced. Carton! Dear Carton! It's madness! It cannot be accomplished. It can never be done. It's never been attempted. And it's, it has been attempted. And it's always failed. I implore you not to add the bitterness of your death to mine. It can't work, he says. In the end, Carton has to drug him on a, on a piece of cloth. And the prison staff take Darnie out in Carton's clothes as if he's the visitor who fainted at the emotion of it all. Later on, Sidney Carton is riding to the guillotine with a young woman. And this young woman has known Charles Darnay and she thinks Sidney Carton is Charles Darnay. And she doesn't realize at first he's swapped and she she asks him if she can hold his hand. But as she looks at his face, he sees that a look of astonishment comes over her face. She realizes that it's not Charles Darnay. And in utter astonishment, she whispers in the carriage, are you dying for him? And he says, shh, yes. And for his wife and child as well. And she says, can I hold your hand? They hold hands all the way to the guillotine. And as they get to the guillotine, the girl says to Carton, but for you, dear stranger, I shouldn't have been so composed, for I'm naturally a poor little thing, faint of heart. Nor should I have been able to raise my thoughts to him who was put to death, that we might have hope and comfort here today. And then she says, I think you were sent to me from heaven. This, friends, is the greatest miracle of all. There is one who's been sent to us from heaven to take our place and suffer for our sins, what will you do? I hope, like this young girl, that you'll hold his hand. Turn from yourself and embrace him, and make the words of this confession in Isaiah chapter 53, your very own words. Amen.